Our call to worship this morning is Psalm 80. It is on pages 544 and 545 in your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty, that your face may shine on us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and wild animals feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. This is in Revelation 12, 7 to 12. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that came up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Many from every people, tribe and language and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Amen. Gospel reading this morning from Matthew 15, verses 1 through 20. And your pew Bible is on page 904 clean and unclean. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me, 
is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are, are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still, are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of your mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what a man, what makes a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. That's four very varied readings coming from very different kinds of directions, and yet I'm going to try to pull three of those four together and give you a fifth. I'm talking about um, a larger picture theme today of leadership, but we're going to use what we started last week with as a, a kind of tool to think of, and that's a preposition device. Now, I'm told there are some 350 prepositions or prepositional phrases in the English language. I don't believe I could begin to identify half of them, so I need to buy the book and read about the 350 uh, because I'm clueless, apparently. Despite my, my third and fifth or seventh grade education, whatever it was, on prepositions. So I come back to the simple truth that a preposition is anything that can be done to a barrel, basically, which is what I was taught as a child. And uh, last week, we looked at the preposition through and examined how... Uh, that is a very useful preposition. Getting through uh, is something very important for us to, to do, whether it's the next task or whether it's through this life into the next. Um, and the way in which uh, God provides in all of that. This week, I want to talk about towards. Towards. You can uh, be oriented towards the barrel or towards something. And what I like about the word towards is that it implies that there's a destination and perhaps that we're either in charge of that ourselves or we're being led to that. Certainly, 
one could argue that it's easy to be distracted from whatever the towards is. We're easily deviated and led elsewhere other than what we're wanting to be moving towards. I think we would generally agree as Christians that all of us want to be moving toward a more vital and healthy relationship with God and one another. I think we would all generally agree as Christians that we want to be moving toward the goal of being more Christ-like in character than less Christ-like in character. I think we would generally agree as Christians that uh, the promises of God that he's prepared a place for us and that there's something on the other side that awaits us, something uh, post-resurrection, something post-second coming, is a life that we're preparing for that we believe is somehow much grander and larger and longer than what we have here and now. And so that's part of the towards as well. Our home is heaven, we would say. We're just passing through. But you can't pass through without a towards, right? So we're headed towards something. And most of us are led toward the direction that we want to be going to or away from the direction we're going through. I also wanted to to comment briefly on the time of year. Last week I noted taxes and some of the difficulties, the doldrums of the season, if you will, although the weather has been incredible. For me, that's part of the depression. I really want February to be cold and rainy. I know there are people who don't care for that, but uh, I will just agree to disagree with those people and let you know that uh, I miss winter. I really uh, missed winter this year. Um, So much so that I've been lighting fires in my fireplace on 60-degree days. I mean, it's just, you know, what's a person to do when uh, other days are 72 and 80? Anyway, despite these... these, uh, the doldrums, as I was pointing out last week, this, this week we're closer to some other things that are celebrated this time of year. Valentine's, the celebration of romance and erotic love. And then we have, of course, President's Day. How many of you have Monday off? Oh, quite a few of you. That's wonderful. You must work somewhere in the public sector. Um, yeah, most uh, a lot of private sector folks don't have that day off. But... President's Day uh, honors two presidents in particular of great note and great uh, contribution to our, our lives as Americans. George Washington and President Abraham Lincoln, too. As I noted in my letter to you, it's Black History Month. And certainly it's worth reflecting on the contributions of Uh, those who came here willingly and those before them who did not come here willingly but have helped to form and forge a great nation and contribute to the world in myriads of positive ways. So uh, these are the things that are positive in the month uh, that we celebrate as we move towards. And with that, I think I'll take us to the text because it's pretty obvious when we look at human leadership that there's a goal. Abraham Lincoln is moving the nation toward the goal of abolition, no more slavery in the land. 
It's a very difficult decision to make because it tears at the very fabric of society. I mean, I think we have to be really honest and say that if to, we, we have something of the same conflict going today, only it takes a much different form. Slavery is alive and well in this country. It isn't the African Americans who are enslaved. It's another group of people who are enslaved in this country. They're working and not getting paid in some cases, or getting paid below minimum wage jobs, living in conditions that are unthinkable, and yet our economy as we know it depends upon it. So the battle for human justice continues. The battle for uh, opportunity for all and for uh, the graces of freedom continues. People continue to struggle and do everything they can to move toward that if possible. So I don't want us to forget the larger issues of, of, of justice in our world today and in our country today. But I want to celebrate what Abraham Lincoln did in saying it's worth tearing a nation in two. And I'm not going to try to let that happen. I'm going to do everything I can to prevent that. But it's worth that to declare the reality of our own constitution that all men are created equal. So... I laud that. And then, of course, Washington, uh, we all tend to know the cherry tree story and the wooden teeth thing and a few other things about him, but he was a military genius and very courageous leader and, and suffered a great deal in leadership and yet persevered and, of course, uh, delivered us from the tyranny of high tea taxes and other things. Uh, George, George Washington led us against the British. So, um, coming, coming back to leadership now in Scripture, let's turn to Psalms, where we started with our call to worship. Psalm chapter 80. And the first three verses speak something powerful about leadership. I used a psalm a couple weeks back that's very familiar, I hope, to all of you. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. There is a God who shepherds us, leading us to places where we can drink in safety and eat in the presence of our enemies, and who tends to our wounds and cuts and scrapes and carries us in his arms, the good shepherd who leads the flock. And in 80 here, we have something that, that is akin to that. <clears throat> Hear us, shepherd of Israel, that motif again. You who lead Joseph like a flock. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. I don't know specifically here why um, the focus, other than that perhaps Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh had been ravaged by a foreign power somehow in a way that the rest of Israel had not. But you who lead Joseph like a flock. Now Joseph and Benjamin were two sons of Rachel, Jacob. Not Leah's children, Rachel's children. 
And so in a way we could, we could say that while Jacob certainly loved all of his sons, Joseph and Benjamin were his favorites. And there is no tribe of Joseph because Joseph was given a double blessing. Both of his children emerged eventually as tribes. And what were his sons' names? Ephraim and Manasseh. And so they are mentioned by name here. That God might deliver, might bless. I like the, where the psalmist places God. You who sit enthroned between the cherubim. It's a scene that comes straight out of many of the apocalyptic scenes of worship that we witness. For example, Revelation. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So we have this notion of God's leadership and deliverance and covering and protection and presence all in Psalm 80. But let's go to Micah 6. I'm going to start reading in three if you found your way there. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Yeah, the Lord is making a case against Israel. Israel has wandered from the direction God has set them on. They've turned to other places and other gods. My God, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That word redeemed is an important one because it's a word that connotes that a payment has been made to free a slave. Redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam my, and then he goes into a remembrance of, of a journey that Israel has made. It's not a profound uh, sort of exegesis, if you will, from this passage, what I'm going to take out here, but I think it's worth just giving it a note. The God who has delivered his people is the same God as the one who's created them. And though we are created in his image and created by him, and though we are redeemed by him, taken from slavery to freedom, our tendency is to wander. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each to our own way. And God asks, what have I done? What have I not done? What, what is it that makes you want to go your own way here. Why is it that you choose another leader or no direction but to lead yourself? What have I done? Answer me. I brought you out of Egypt. And then in conjunction with that, he makes a secondary point. Okay, it may not be easy to follow an invisible God or even necessarily a God made visible in fire and in cloud. But I sent you Moses and I sent you Aaron and I sent you Miriam, flesh and blood, male and female. I sent you people, visible representatives to lead you. 
And Moses successfully led as long as he stayed completely connected with what God had for him, yes? Moses' leadership wasn't just Moses leading, it was Moses in interface with God, right? Taking the people to the place that God had for them, the promised land. That's a huge responsibility. I have to say, I don't carry it in the same way as Moses. We're not wandering literally through a desert with a million people and camped and so forth over a period of years. I don't have the blessings of the Urim and Thummim and, and I don't have the blessings of a Shekinah glory and a tent and a meeting place except that God dwells here among us and that we share in the priesthood and the responsibility to listen to that voice and be led, to be guided, to be engaged by God's presence and God's spirit together. But he still calls people to lead. And I, I, I trust that as I'm connected to the purposes of God, where we head together is to that promised land. I trust that we're headed toward places of grace and freedom, where it's safe to drink and where we can eat in the presence of our enemies. I don't want to be like the one who climbs the wall to rile up the sheep or to steal or kill. I want to be working for the man who's the gate to the pen good shepherd who takes care of the flock and who's part of the flock at some level you see God not only led Israel personally and delivered them but he sent leaders to help them find their way and he puzzles as to why why that's uh, not been responded to as Israel has wandered so where we are led is important. Being led out of slavery into freedom is important. Being led from self-destructiveness to places of safety is important. Being led from tyranny of any kind to freedom is important. And our gospel passage will address more of that. But let's look in the meantime at our revelation story. I think... What ended up happening this morning was that Revelation 11 was read. I'm going to read from Revelation 12, 7 to 12. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. This great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because, that he, knows, because he knows that his time is short. That's an interesting passage. 
Satan or the devil, this ancient serpent, is one who leads the whole earth astray. I don't need to take a lot of time here, I don't think. Most of us come from backgrounds in which good and evil were both understood. Most of us come from backgrounds where good and evil were even personalized. God being uh, the one who is good and evil being the one represented in the person of Satan. We've, we've grown up with a kind of dualism there and a personalization of evil. And Revelation would support that. It says there's this war, this controversy that breaks out. And as Adventists, we know a lot about that. Because one of our wonderful founders wrote a book, The Great Controversy, which was all about this war between Michael and the dragon. And, and the way in which we're participants. You see, it isn't whether you'll be led or not, it's by whom. You've heard that before too. But it's worth repeating. The daily battle isn't about whether you're going to be led or not it's by whom you'll either make choices that assign your direction and destiny to the one Christ has designed for you the one who's going to bring you through and toward the kingdom or you're going to be choosing whether passively or actively your own course and a course that will destine you to destruction this is the reality that we're so familiar with and the one we've taught for so many years. And I don't like spending a lot of time on the particulars because they get parsed out in ways that I think sometimes fight against the very notion of grace or the goodness of the gift that we've been offered or the real power of God to supersede in all of this, to triumph through all of this. I think sometimes when we look at sin and focus on sin and the problems of sin, we give the devil too much power. We all know we're weak and vulnerable. We all know we've failed and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know we will again, maybe this very day. But the battle is in the choice as to whose leadership you're going to take not what mistakes you make. The battle is in the choice of what you're going to be pulled toward. Will it be the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or will it be something else? Revelation outlines it in the context of this battle. I don't want to be led by the one who deceives the world and leads them to destruction. Who leads matters. And let's go now to the gospel. I believe the story is not present only in Matthew. I believe Luke has an interesting version of the story as well. <clears throat> and frames it slightly differently, this teaching. But the story takes place in the context of leadership. There is a law, and it's good. Psalmist delights in it. But over time, it gets crusty and barnacled and encumbered with all sorts of rules and regulations meant to protect and preserve and uphold the law, but ultimately destructive of its very purpose and character. 
You see, the law does state that we're to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy. But it doesn't give us in itself 620 ways in which that has to be done. And this is the problem that we run into. We're so eager sometimes to be good boys and girls, obedient boys and girls, that we not only mark out the law, but make laws about the law to make sure that we aren't coming close to breaking the law. And we entrap ourselves. I can't tell you, for every one of you sitting here today, there are projected, the numbers vary, but anywhere from four at the very least to maybe as many as eight former Adventists out there not sitting with us today. Some of them have left, not all of them, some of them have left because they could never figure out how to break free from the laws that surrounded the laws. They could never find freedom in Christ within the faith. That's a good reason to leave. If you're struggling with that, I'd be delighted to speak with you because I've had to make that journey myself from a very uh, encrusted sort of legalistic faith to a faith that is much, much more free and open and able to celebrate the goodness and grace of God in the context of Sabbath. And there's something really wonderful and powerful about that. And that's a journey, if you haven't made it through, it's a journey you can make through. It's a journey God can lead you through on. You don't have, have to disengage. You don't have to separate to do it. But here the Pharisees were. The disciples had harvested grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees were offended. They wanted to know why Jesus' disciples didn't keep the law. Because according to the Pharisees, who was the giver of the law? Moses. Who was the real giver of the law? God. God was the real giver of the law. But they had narrowed it down to the one who received the law. You see? Moses gave the law. And who was greater than Moses? No one. I mean, Abraham is the father of the nation. Okay, he gets kudos there. Elijah was translated. He's a pretty great prophet. But no one's greater than Moses. Specifically, it's blasphemy for Jesus to suggest that he might supersede Moses or Elijah or be in their company, frankly. And yet Jesus seems to be ignoring something that in some people's view should supersede him. They forgot that God is greater than Moses and that Jesus' claim, while apparently blasphemous, places him at the side of God as God. Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath? I know all about that. It is really one of my busiest working days. And yet they are innocent. 
I tell you that one greater than I, one greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Let's see if he'll sin again. He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored and sound just as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Where are you being led? Are you being led by people who put rules above people? Are you missing the great miracle that's before you because you're blinded by frustration that the process by which the miracle took place wasn't yours? Are you headed to a legalism toward a perfection and a righteousness that's all of your own? whereby you don't need the robe of Christ provided for the banquet supper? Is that where you're being led? I think there's still a couple television preachers out there who kind of go that direction. One might want to be careful. Jesus says a human being is more valuable. Jesus said... Yeah, there's the law and there's always the exceptions. Haven't you read the word? Jesus says, if you knew who you were speaking to, you would know that I'm Lord of the Sabbath because I gave you the Sabbath. Not only in creation, but on Sinai. And the response of the leaders is to plot to kill Jesus. Do a word study this afternoon. Go home, go to BibleGateway.com, Go to keyword search, plug in the word leader, and read the New Testament references. 95% of them are negative because they talk about the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders. The Sanhedrin, the rabbi, the teachers, the pastors were the problem. I'm not trying to give you any ideas. But the pastors were the problem. Where they wanted to lead was a law made by man, surrounding by a law man received, surrounded by a law that God had given. And the idolatry was the law, not the God of the law. They had worshipped the wrong thing. They had focused on the wrong piece. Where are you being led? Is the religion you're being led in moving you toward a greater acceptance of the goodness of God and the worth of others? Is the place you're being led in religion toward being able to see the face of Jesus in the face of another? Is the place you're being led a place where we take seriously what God asks us to do because he's our friend and our father and we've chosen to serve him? Or is it because you want to earn that crown as if you could. Are you being led to a place 
where grace infuses the relationships that you engage. Even if you, you'll make an occasional mistake. You'll find a very irritating person you're going to lose your temper with. Good for you, you're human. It happens. There's going to be somebody that you don't like. Welcome to the club. We all have people we don't like. There's going to be someone who's just plain wrong, but can't see it. And they're probably your boss. And you will be led down a path you do not want to go at work. I'm sorry. It happens to the best of us. But we must learn to be led toward love. And a place where we don't focus on the speck in our brother's eye because of the log in our own. A place where we are free not to be judged because we've left judgment to the one who is Lord, Master, and Father of all. Where we engage the journey with a clear direction because we know where we're headed towards and by whom we've been called and what that means. Jesus called his disciples and he still calls today. And his call is to you. At the very minimum, it's come to the safety of my fold. At the very minimum is, be one of my sheep. Let me lead you and care for you and bind your wounds. It's the God that calls us because he wants to heal us and set us free and give us the grace to enjoy life and have it more abundantly. Is that where you're being led? I pray it's so. And that those will be your choices as we think about that wonderful preposition toward. of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes and so Lord usher into your kingdom us and those we love through that those acts of deeds and deeds of goodness and mercy we thank you in Jesus name Amen